0: We
1: are learning more about how four members of a London, Ontario family were struck and killed by a vehicle in that city on Sunday evening. And we now know, because the police told us, that they are believed to have been targeted because they were Muslim. For more on this and how the community is responding, Andrew Graham joins us now, reporter for CFPL London. Andrew, thank you for being here.
2: Thanks for having me, Simi.
1: This must have come as quite a shock when the police held that press conference yesterday to say this is what they believe happened.
2: It truly was, and partially because we don't really know what led them to believe that this is targeted, that it's planned and premeditated. A lot of details are under a publication ban uh, with any evidence in the uh, trial proceedings right now that was uh, ruled yesterday during the uh, first court appearance for the accused. But at the moment, we don't know what's led police to believe that this was a planned and premeditated act. And, of course, he is charged with first-degree murder in four of those counts and obviously attempted murder for the nine-year-old.
1: And what are we? How is the community reacting at this point, Andrew?
2: Plenty of sorrow, plenty of heartbreak. This morning, I'm at the memorial that's been set up at the scene of the attack, and I'm seeing folks continue to lay flowers. Um, uh, dozens of folks have arrived already. Only at nine o'clock, and. A lot, of, a lot of tears are being shed, even just now and yesterday, I'm sure there are even more. We are having a, 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 a vigil at the London Muslim Mosque tonight. I've been told that uh, Jameet Singh, the uh, leader of the federal NDP, will actually be making an appearance. And I'm sure plenty of people will also be making an appearance. And just plenty of heartbreak in London at the moment.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that. Uh, so yesterday when the police came out and, and, and said this, do we know anything at this point about the suspect in this case?
2: There is very little that we know. We know he's a 20-year-old. We know that he didn't have any prior history or anything that raised any red flags. At least that's not what we're told by police. Um, they have been staying fairly silent about the entire ordeal. We know he was arrested without incident. Um, they said he was wearing a uh, a type of vest that resembled a uh, body armor, a body armor style vest. They're referring to it as we don't know if he had any weapons on him. We don't know what he said to police as he was arrested. So still plenty of questions. And his next court date has been set for this Thursday.
1: So is there going to be any update today from the police? I would imagine there's quite a lot of demand, right, for some of the answers to these questions.
2: At the moment, we do not know, but we are hoping to find more answers. We are following up with police, and yesterday's uh, news conference was made uh, only within a few hours in advance. So I'm assuming we will hear some more today.
1: Do we have any word on how the nine-year-old boy is doing?
2: At the moment, we do not. We know he is suffering from serious but non-life-threatening injuries. The key word there that it is non-life-threatening, so he is expected to survive. Uh, Apart from that, we haven't heard from him and don't know what kind of emotional state he's in. I mean, Mm -hmm. I imagine it must be tragic, tragic. I mean, he's lost two generations of family members at this point.
1: Oh, that is so awful. Um, Andrew, thank you for the update this morning.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Appreciate that. Andrew Graham is a reporter with CFPL in London, Ontario, uh, where this horrific act happened. It was surprising yesterday. I was uh, reading the news in the afternoon, and I saw this, and I think everybody was kind of taken off guard, that the police chief came out and said, we believe this was an intentional act and that the victims of this horrific incident were targeted. Four people have been killed, nine-year-old boys still in hospital, and they believe that they were targeted for being Muslim. And obviously more to come on that, as Andrew pointed out, still many questions that need to be answered, so we'll have those updates for you.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, as we've been hearing in the news and we were just talking to a reporter in London, Ontario, a vigil is scheduled for tonight at the mosque of the five family members who police say were intentionally struck down by a driver in that city in Ontario. This happened uh, on Sunday evening. Yesterday, of course, came the update from police Now, the London Muslim mosque says the city and the country are just devastated in the aftermath of that attack. Nine-year-old boy is still in hospital, lots of questions about how he is doing. And police have said now the family members were targeted because of their Muslim faith. They say a pickup truck, they're alleging that a 20-year-old London man Jumped the curb and struck them as they were out for an evening walk and then drove away. He is now in custody. For more on this and the kind of the reaction to it and what it says about what has been going on in our country, we're joined now by Amira el who's a founding board member of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Amira, thank you for being here.
3: Good morning, Simi.
1: What did you think when you heard this news? Like, it, I think it is shocking for so many people to hear that. Were you shocked by it?
3: Yes, of course. Um, you know, it's, um, it's horrendous to imagine that this beautiful family was out for an evening stroll, as many of us have been doing throughout this pandemic, you know, taking our loved ones, going out, getting some fresh air, um, and in broad daylight, you know, they're just, mowed down in this way, and, you know, a family is destroyed. You know, this little boy uh, who has lost both parents, a grandmother, his older sister, it's devastating. And so, you know, as, as I was kind of sinking in yesterday, like, my hands kept shaking. Um, I, I thought back to the Quebec City massacre, where six worshippers were gunned down by someone consumed by hatred as well. Um, it's, it's, it's really quite devastating for everyone.
1: When this happens, and you mentioned the Quebec City situation too, everybody says they're so shocked by this, right, that that somebody would target people simply because of their faith, but yet it seems to keep happening in Canada, doesn't it?
3: Well, I mean, there is sadly a trend that demonstrates that, you know, uh, Canadian Muslims have been uh, experiencing um, elevated uh, activities where it comes to harassment, vandalism, assault. You know, we've had a spate of attacks against visibly Muslim women in Alberta, for instance. We've had um, all sorts of um, different types of um, incidents. Uh, there was a stabbing of a volunteer caretaker at Toronto Mosque last fall by an individual with ties to hate groups. Um, we've seen throughout this pandemic as well sort of this, what I've been calling a toxic brew in which you know, c- conspiracy theorists getting together with far right groups and their racist rhetoric and really amplifying that, and then seeing that you know, spill over into attacks against Asian Canadians as well. So, it, it, the, the sad, sad reality is that um, we are seeing more division. We are seeing the promotion of hate online that's, that's coming out in real life. Um, and, and there are those rare instances, uh, and it only takes one person uh, where that hatred spills over in in a way that destroys an entire family and terrorizes an entire community. How can we fight this? I mean, it's the perennial question, um, but there are certainly solutions out there. So um, first and foremost, when it comes to the online space, and again, we don't know what led this perpetrator to do what he did, but we do know there is a, cl- a climate online that is very toxic, that is very dangerous, that, you know, advocates have been calling on the federal government to rein in. We're waiting for legislation that uh, we're told is coming soon on that. Um, but even further, we need a public inquiry to look at the rise of hate groups in this country, to look at division, to look at the narratives. Uh, that are fueling xenophobia and bigotry against a wide range of groups. You know, whether it's um, Black Canadians, Jewish Canadians, Asian Canadians, as I said, there's a long list, sadly, of of groups that are being targeted online and then and therefore experiencing these types of real-time affa- uh, effects and attacks. So we we just need to to really ex- expect from uh, policymakers concrete proposals to listen to community to address this phenomenon um, because all of us deserve to feel safe i should not be worried when i walk out my door wearing a headscarf as i do holding my little boy in my hand that someone so consumed by the 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 hatred and the lies that he he or she's been consuming online or elsewhere that they might decide to harm me in this way i shouldn't have to worry about that nobody should
1: no, nobody should. But what do you think a public inquiry would do though, Amira? Like we know what the problem is. We we know the pattern that happens. Would a public inquiry help with that? You know,
3: I think that it would in the sense of really more specifically naming some of the groups, for instance, looking at the way that they're organizing, figuring out ways to dismantle, looking at other countries. In New Zealand, for instance, with the Christchurch massacre from 2019 and the killing of 51 worshippers at two mosques, there was a royal commission on what happened. And what they actually did was... We looked at all public agencies, how they were responding more generally to hatred. Where were the gaps? And we know there are gaps right here in Canada. Two-thirds of Canadians are not comfortable reporting hate that they're experiencing, according to Statistics Canada. People are not coming forward. There is a lot more activity out there going on than we are realizing. And so a public inquiry would bring a lot more to light. Um, It would empower communities to be able to articulate what's happening to them. It would allow us, for instance, to advocate for third-party reporting, getting community health centers, for instance, to be able to take reports of hate and then funneling that back to police to investigate. You know, there's a whole range of possible solutions to address this, but we're not provided the space to talk about it, to explore it, and eventually to make those recommendations to those who can make the change.
1: And you think the public inquiry is the only way to make that happen?
3: Not the only way. It's It's just one possible tool in the toolbox. Um, You know, many of us who have been advocating for change have been, for instance, also calling for more robust hate crimes units. We've been calling for um, different ways for people, as I said, to report hate crimes and hate incidents. There are coalitions and various communities bringing people together here in Ottawa, for instance. We have a United for All, which brings various stakeholders uh, together to condemn hate and to think about ways to bring people together and address it. Um, so there are a range of possibilities here. Um, but again, it's, it's not waiting for a mass murder of this magnitude to have that conversation and to have it for a short period of time while it's in the public's mind, but to have a more sustained examination of what people are going through, as well as to look at the systemic impacts of racism. You know, just across the bridge here in Ottawa to Quebec, uh, we have systemic racism against people who wear religious clothing, that they are not able to hold various positions of authority. They can't, you know, a woman like myself who wears a hijab can't be a teacher. Someone who wears a kippah cannot be a crown prosecutor. That is systemic discrimination and racism. It creates uh, second-tier citizenship. And so there's a whole gamut of ways that we need to look at how are various groups in our society being excluded from participation? How is that fueling that otherization, that demonization that we are Mm -hmm. seeing? um, And how are we going to address it collectively?
1: Amira, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Sima. Appreciate the discussion. That's Amira El-Gawabi, founding board member of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, talking about the ways that she thinks Canada needs to deal with these issues. The latest, of course, unfortunately, being this horrible story out of London, Ontario. Five family members were intentionally struck down by a driver in that city. Four of them were killed. One, a nine-year-old boy, remains
0: in hospital. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, when will the Canada-U.S. border open? For the last year, it has remained firmly closed. But lately, there have been more and more calls for the Trudeau government to start making plans to reopen the crossing. The U.S. government is on a big push to hit that 70% fully vaccinated mark among its population. Canada is trying to do the same. So why aren't we talking publicly about a plan? The tourism industry would certainly like to. The Tourism Industry Association of Canada is launching a new campaign to get the border open. Beth Potter, the president and CEO, joins us now. Good morning, Beth. Good morning. How are you today? I am good, thank you. Why do you think this is the right time to launch this campaign?
4: Uh, A number of reasons, actually. Um, You know, we've seen the vaccine numbers going up. We've seen case counts coming down. Um, And the expert panel, um, you know, on testing, released a report last week that said that we, you know, we can start to open the border in a phased approach. Um, and so it's time and we've spent 15 months closed without international visitors and our industry is is hurting it's, it's time for us to
1: get back to work. OK, so what do you think that looks like?
4: Well, um, we know that there are conversations have been happening around, um, you know, allowing fully vaccinated travelers to uh, come across the border. And we think that's a great idea Uh, We also would like to see um, testing and processes in place for non-vaccinated travelers or not fully vaccinated travelers uh, coming across the border as well, uh, just to ensure that we continue to, um, you know, keep everyone safe.
1: Right. So do you get any sense, um, though, Beth, that the government is working on this? Like what kind of messages have you received?
4: So they keep telling us that they're working on this um, and that they are, uh, you know, it's been the focus of many conversations, um, you know, at the G7 meetings recently. Um, and, uh, you know, Minister Freeland uh, talked about the fact that, you know, she was speaking with her counterparts around reopening the border. Uh, Minister Algabar when he was at the G7 transport um, meeting, tells us the same thing um, internally and in, in different ministries and agencies at the federal level. We're hearing that, that they are
1: working on this
4: but our our message today really is if you're working on it, that's fantastic. Could you please give us a plan?
1: Yeah, okay, I can see that. yeah. Do you think there is demand um, to travel to Canada for tourism right now? Yes,
4: I do, um, and we're hearing that from our our members, from operators from coast to coast to coast as they speak to their American clients um, you know we've got uh, people that are anxious to come across the border and and spend time here in Canada,
1: right? So you feel like is this an in, like this is an industry that has been very badly hit over the last year, hasn't it?
4: It really has. We, prior to the pandemic, our industry was a hundred and five billion dollar a year industry, employing close to two million Canadians. Um, we have lost at least half of that. Uh, revenue now, and for some operators, it's been a hundred percent because they've been closed for the past 15 months.
1: Are you worried so, about bringing employees back into this? Do you, like, you know, we're hearing that a lot of people may have found other jobs. Is it going to be tough recruiting people to come back?
4: We think it might be. Um, we've been talking to uh, operators, we've been also been talking to folks who've been displaced to try and understand where they are. Um, and we certainly know that some had to move on to get other work uh, in order to continue to provide for their families, um, pay their rent, pay their mortgage, you know, put food on the table. Um, so we're going to have a big recruiting uh, challenge ahead of us, that's for sure. Um, but um, but we're up to it. Um, and so we're, you know, we're ready to rock and roll. Um, and um, it would be great if we had a timeline in which we knew what that uh, what that ramp-up time, time
1: frame looked like. And so, Beth, quickly, how soon do you think the border should reopen?
4: Well, we, I mean, I would love to say give everybody, every Canadian a gift for Canada Day, but uh, realistically, I think we need four to six weeks, uh, not only for, um, you know, government processes to be put in place and, and for them to, to uh, ramp up their operations at all point, ports of entry, but um, industry needs it, too. Like you right. said, we've got to wrap up um, operations that have been shut down for 15 months, and we need to hire back our, and retrain
1: our staff. All right, Beth, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Good news for
5: 200. In 2020, this Canadian province purchased a hotel in the capital of Victoria to house its homeless population. Derek. What is British Columbia?
1: Yes. At least that got classified as good news on Jeopardy last night, right? Our housing, affordability, and homelessness issues are top of mind for us in this province, but also clearly make headlines elsewhere, too, even on U.S. game shows. There are an awful lot of people here who need help finding a more stable place to live, a situation that has just seemingly gotten worse during the pandemic. And while the province has been buying hotels to house people for the last year or two, one of the facilities that they have been using in Victoria is no longer going to be available to them. That's the Save-On Foods Memorial Centre. It's been used as a temporary shelter, but the lease is up, can't be renewed. The centre is about to play home to an International Olympics qualifying basketball tournament. So what about the people who've been staying there? Where are they going to go? Well, for more on that, we're joined by the Attorney General and Minister Responsible for Housing, David Eby. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Were you a little surprised to watch that on Jeopardy last night?
6: I was was really surprised. I thought it was under the good news category because I think it
7: is good news.
1: It is good news, right? But clearly, it's still an ongoing shifting situation. So what's going on with the Save on Foods Memorial Coliseum situation?
6: Yeah, we're not a, we're not yet where we want to be, which is uh, which is as many people as possible in stable, long term, permanent housing. Uh, it's a work in progress, and Save On Foods Memorial Arena is part of that. Um, we knew that at some point, uh, public health restrictions would be lifted uh, to the point that the arena would be able to be used for regular events, whether it's in this case a basketball tournament or a concert or whatever it was going to be. Uh, so there is an Olympic basketball tournament coming to the arena. Uh, we uh, talked to the basketball people. They uh, have put a lot of planning into uh, arranging the bubble and meeting public health requirements. Another location was not possible. And uh, so it's required us to uh, respond. Uh, but the good news is uh, we've worked with the health authority and uh, Mount Tolmie Hospital uh, is a vacant facility and uh, and we're able to use that facility. BC Housing has uh, has got it all up and ready to go. And the good news is for the folks who are moving there, they'll have either uh, a private room or uh, no more than one roommate. Currently they have 42 uh, roommates in the arena. Uh, so they'll have more privacy and then it'll be a more appropriate and, and longer term, although temporary setting as well right, before they move to permanent housing.
1: That's what I was wondering too. So is this a more permanent solution or is this still a temporary one?
6: Uh, this is a 12 month uh, use of the facility. So in Victoria, we have hundreds of units of supportive housing coming online and we're working really closely with the city of Victoria to get those open and up and running as quickly as possible. Uh, and uh, so it's it's, Good news uh, for the people that are in these temporary shelters. There's one on Russell Street in Victoria. Um, Mount Tolmey is another site where um, they will be closing and folks will be moving from there into permanent housing in the Capital Regional District.
1: Okay, you said it's a 12-month uh, lease then. So what happens after that? Where are people going to go?
6: So it's, it's not fully decided between the Health Authority and D.C. Housing yet what's going to happen uh, to that site. Uh, it's not currently being used for its old purpose, which was as a hospital. So, there's a possibility that BC Housing could ultimately um, redevelop the site for housing, but those folks who are in the hospital uh, staying there and using it as a shelter for this period of time will be moving over into um, uh, permanent housing. Uh, And so, there there are three sites with uh, modular housing that are going up in Victoria. There's a site in Vantage, and uh, there's also affordable housing going up throughout the region, and some people don't need the supports; They just need a place. So, Um, we're going to be able to get people inside to permanent housing, which is what uh, everybody's goal is.
1: Yeah, how do you feel the last couple of months has gone, right? There was the moving people out of the different parks, whether it was in Vancouver, Victoria. Um, How are you feeling about how that process went? Is there stuff that we can do better?
6: Well, I would would use an analogy, you know, like we were in a real uh, emergency room kind of situation, and and, uh, things really needed to be stabilized. We had encampments, major encampments, and Vancouver and Victoria, hundreds of people uh, in parks, and uh, we're in a much better place now. Uh, it, people are inside; uh, they're getting supports where they are. Um, there's still uh, temporary sites, and so there are things like hotels and uh, and Russell Street in Victoria, and we're moving from Save on Foods, but we're moving from the stabilization phase to uh, to recovery, and, and that means getting people into the permanent housing. So uh, we're headed we're headed in the right direction, and uh, there's a lot more work. Um, but uh, but when we look at, uh, at Vancouver, you know, Strathcona Park um, is uh, that encampment is over. People are inside uh, Victoria. Uh, the mayor said there are fewer than, I believe she said there were fewer than ten encampments uh, in the pro- in the in the city right now, which is really positive news. And uh, and that's where we want to be, is we don't want large numbers of people in parks. We want adequate shelter space and, and a road for people to get into permanent housing. So I think we've turned the corner at this stage. And and hopefully, as the pandemic and public health restrictions ease. Uh, We'll see even more capacity in the shelters, which is one of the things that drove this. The shelters had to run at about 50% capacity for social distancing and so on, Mm -hmm. sometimes even less than that. So as we uh, turn the corner of the pandemic, there'll be even more capacity coming online. And we have hundreds of units of supportive housing coming up in Vancouver as well. So uh, I think we're going to see some good progress. I think people will see some real improvements really looking forward to where we're going.
1: Is this a system that you think will be more permanent than this process of moving people into, you know, hotels or whatever the housing may be until they get something more permanent? Or is this just an emergency situation? Uh,
6: this, in in many ways, was a, a unique situation driven by uh, the pandemic and the public health restrictions, you know, people who were crashing at another person's room facing guest restrictions because of the pandemic or the shelters that usually would have people housed there over the winter not opening because of the pandemic or regular shelters running at half capacity, services that help keep people in their housing uh, not running, not able to run because of public health restrictions. Uh, We saw a really significant uptick in visible and uh, street homelessness, visible mental health issues in communities across the province and it wasn't just B.C., it's across North America. So these are measures put in place to get people inside, get them stable and supported through the pandemic, and uh, and ultimately to transition to permanent housing. We're putting uh, a really significant amount of... Uh, resources into ensuring that uh, our homeless uh, uh, problems and crisis, really in many parts of the province, is being addressed from small communities. I'm working with Grand Forks right now to uh, to our largest communities like Surrey, Vancouver, Victoria.
1: Right, we're gonna have to do this for a long time, right? This is not something that we can just say, "Well, the pandemic is over and we don't have to worry about this anymore."
6: Yeah, no, this is a this is a long-term project, and and uh, over the next 18 months uh, across the province. Uh, we have uh, thousands of units of housing uh, opening and uh, in low end of market, as well as supportive housing, and as well as uh, things like student housing. that take the pressure off of, uh, of rental housing generally in different communities. We have more than 7,000 units of, of student housing under construction or complete. So it's it's an exciting time, and uh, but uh, there's a huge amount of work ahead. And, and one of the big parts is uh, we need our municipal partners to get the housing units or funding through their approval processes we have uh thousands of units in various municipal processes across the province and just encouraging our city partners to get those approved to get those to the point where we can start building
1: are there a couple of communities where you think they really do need to get on it like would you single out any communities for that
6: well well one of them and i think we agree is is vancouver i've uh, had many conversations with the mayor and council and uh, and they know they have a big challenge with approvals in vancouver generally uh, as well as on the affordable housing front. Uh, we've seen some motions uh, come forward about uh, dealing with that. And, and they have put some changes in place to expedite uh, affordable housing approvals, which is uh, very much appreciated. So they do get approved more quickly than others. Um, but uh, in Victoria, for example, uh, they asked us to come in and use uh, uh, something called statutory immunity, which means that for a provincially owned site and construction, uh, we can ignore local bylaws and zoning rules and, uh, and go ahead and build and we did that at the invitation of the City of Victoria to bypass their approvals processes entirely. So um, so there's lots of different ways to approach the problem, and we're working with cities to, to get these built as quickly as possible.
1: Could you do that in Vancouver if Vancouver asked you to?
6: We could. I, I think um, uh, Vancouver is hopeful to, to get these through their approval processes um, uh, in an expeditious way, sure. and, and sure. there is a lot of value when they can do that in having the community come and, and share their views about uh, about how the project should go ahead. Um, I just hope it happens quickly because there's a huge amount of urgency here.
1: Alright, thank you so much for your time on that this morning.
6: Thanks for having me.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So Kamloops is not the only site of a residential school where work is being done to identify unmarked graves. More and more of these schools across the country are being examined. But how is the work being done? Like, where do you even start to approach a project like this? Well, given what's happened in Kamloops, the Sioux Valley Dakota Nation in Manitoba is resuming its investigation on the grounds of the Brandon Indian Residential School. Their work had been halted by the pandemic, so now they're getting underway again. So what they're doing is they are collaborating with researchers from a number of institutions, including Simon Fraser University. They're going to use forensic methods and archive Research and interviews with survivors to try to identify all of the children, and they're doing this under the lead of SFU Professor Eldon Long Yellowhorn, who joins us now. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Good morning. So, this work is getting underway. How far along is it right now?
7: Uh, well, actually, we've uh, progressed a fair amount because this, is, this project actually began in 2012 uh, when. Uh, young lady that I'm supervising for her PhD, uh, her name is uh, Catherine Nichols, and she began this work uh, with her master's degree. So this is a continuation of the work that she had started back then.
1: And how much progress has been made so far?
7: Well, um, we've done the initial surveys and uh, had an opportunity to use uh, different methods in order to uh, ascertain the edges of the uh, cemetery. And... To look for uh, unmarked graves in that area, so uh, we've also done some uh, archival research, and, and so we have a uh, list of uh, some of them who are who are buried there. And of course, there's still some that are not. Uh, we have no records for,
8: mm-hmm.
7: uh, so we continue that kind of work. Yeah, and uh, so Captain actually did quite a bit of the. Uh, fieldwork in advance with her research, and, and she did and used a number of methods. Uh, and even even one method that she used was a, a controlled burn of the area to, to remove uh, surface vegetation so that we could get a better idea or that she could get a better idea of the uh, area under question.
1: Right. Will you be and, using, like, the ground-penetrating radar, or what kind of methods will be used?
7: Well, we've already done that GPR, uh GPR, but it also... Uh, an aerial drone survey. So this is just a low-level survey that you know, gives you a, a different perspective and also because um, you can do it at different times of day, you know, because the the way light reflects off vegetation at different times will give you different results. Uh, another method is one known as the electrical resistivity where you put probes in the ground and you send a, an electrical charge through and you can uh, get a, interpret the signals that way as well. So by using the different lines of methods, we can triangulate and get a better idea about, uh, increase our confidence in what we're seeing.
1: Eldon, what did you think when you heard about the Camloop situation there? Like, do you expect something similar will happen at this site in Brandon?
7: Um, well, we're, we're pretty certain about where the cemeteries are. Uh, so it's, it's not going to, you know, we're not looking outside other areas uh, because we already have the three three main cemeteries that were uh, there. Um, however, you know, there are other schools across the country that have not received any kind of scrutiny. And uh, there still might be cases like that out there.
1: Right. But I guess the challenging thing is here is identifying everyone or, or getting records or knowing about the people, right, who were found.
7: Yeah. I mean, one of the ways, that, because we do use forensic methods and, you know, uh, and also we're archaeologists, so uh, whether we have records or not is uh, doesn't really make a difference to our work, uh, because we have other techniques that we can use. You know, for example, um, one that is becoming more common is forensic use of uh, DNA, and that's something where, you know, we have a geneticist on our team. Uh, who can help us on that in case of, you know, where repatriation is requested, we can have a very certain that, uh, who's, uh, who's related to who.
1: Right. So you're going to determine that. That sounds, that's a huge project. That sounds like it's going to be going on for a long time.
7: Yes. Yes. It's a multi-year project. And, you know, we're, uh, and we're all researchers, so we're all very patient, you know, we verify and verify and, and, uh, you know, we want to be very certain about what, uh, uh, results we get from the project.
1: Right. Do you think there's a lot of interest in the work right now, Eldon, not just your site, but sites like that across the country?
7: Uh, well, back in 2009, I had a, a sabbatical year and, and during that time I was uh, hired by the TRC uh, to go around to some uh, residential schools that were known to have uh, cemeteries but were abandoned. And uh, so my job was to Go visit these places and to ascertain, you know, where the cemetery was, what its condition condition was, and uh, this sort of thing.
1: Right. So you're saying this work has kind of been done for a long time, though. But what about the records? Like, uh, what kind of record keeping was done, even though they knew where all the cemeteries were?
7: Mm. Well, I mean, like, uh, record keeping was very spotty back back then, you know, and and also. Uh, In the intervening years, there there could be any number of uh, things that would destroy records, like a fire or a flood or something along those lines. Uh, And also, you know, when agencies move from one place to another, uh, maybe some of the records get uh, lost or, you know, there's any number of reasons that could happen.
1: What do you hope to achieve out of this project, then?
7: Uh, Well, you know, the... uh, we're guided by this uh, international convention on the rights of the child, and Article eight of that speaks about uh, the the right. Every child has a right to an identity, and if that identity has been removed by the state, then the state has an op- uh, obligation to help restore that identity. And so uh, we're we're working under a guideline and and using that as our uh, you know. Uh, benchmark how we uh, recover identities and restore identities to children who had their identities taken from them.
1: I look forward to hearing more about this. Eldon, thank you for your time this morning.
7: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for your interest.
1: That is Eldon Yellowhorn. He's a professor of First Nations Studies and Archaeology at Simon Fraser University, and they are part of the research team that is working with the Sioux Valley Dakota Nation in Manitoba. And they are resuming an investigation that they started a few years ago to identify the children buried in unmarked graves at the Brandon Indian Residential School. And as you heard Eldon describe there, it is a pretty extensive project, but their goal here is to reclaim the identities of the children who died at that school during its operation from 1895 to 1972. Just being able to tell families that, yes, you have a family member here, a loved one here, and allowing them to have that closure is what this project is all about. But also, as you heard, it's going to be a long road to getting all of that done.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, you know, the graduating class of 2020, they had it tough, right? Right up until March of last year, their year was proceeding normally. And then everything got shut down. No ceremony, no grad outfits, no nothing. And now here we are in 2021. You'd like to think things were different. It was a very different school year for this class. Uh, But many parents feel that this graduating class is also getting the short end of the stick. Restrictions are being lifted, uh, right? We've got vaccinations happening. Is there a way for the graduates of 2021 to celebrate safely? So yesterday on CKNW Afternoons, Jody Vance asked Health Minister Adrian Dix about this issue that is being raised by both parents and graduates. Is there going to be some way that grads, the young people who have suffered so much in this last 16 months, are going to be able to celebrate outdoors, socially distanced and all that, in that larger number? Will that change?
8: Well, I think I think that's happening, but uh, uh, that's happening because there are, were changes at Step 1. And should we yes. uh, arrive at Step 2 on June 15th, um, it'll change. But let, just to put one thing in context here, um, we've had an incredible response from... Uh, from youth 12 to 17 in B.C. Yes. So far, 121,000 have been immunized at 39%. The vaccine takes a number of weeks, as you know, to go to full effectiveness. So part of the reason the rules aren't fundamentally changed for grad, even though we know how important it is for people to have there and how important it is for their memories and having been together often for 13 years with another group of people that they're kind of yeah. leaving on that day, how important it is. But um, the reason why the same rules apply there as everything else and particularly apply for grad ceremonies is that we're not quite there yet. In that group okay. in the population, we're at 59.5% of those 18 to 24, for so those 18 and 39%. And the vaccine takes some weeks to go uh, to put in place. So we've got to continue to follow public health orders right now. And I know it's frustrating and I know there's been loss. And I think all the school districts are working on ways and grad classes are working on ways to try and make this special under the circumstances. But those circumstances still exist.
1: All right. Those circumstances still exist. Let's talk to a parent about this. Tina Barkley joins us now, parent of a 2021 grad. Tina, thanks for being here.
5: Thanks for having me, Simi.
1: Now, what did you think when you heard that from the health minister?
5: Oh, my gosh, I thought a lot of things. (laughs) You know, I mean, first of all, I have to say, I can't imagine how difficult it is to make policy and and do what they're doing. That job, I, I do not envy one, you know, one bit. But truthfully, you know, you know, why is Minister Dix making vaccination rates a requirement for grad ceremonies, but they're not a requirement for any other event? You know, I can have a grad party next week with 50 people or a backyard barbecue or a (laughs) whatever, and there's no vaccination requirement. So that's very puzzling to me. Um, You know, at the heart of it is that grads have been left out of all of these easing restriction guidelines. It just doesn't make any sense.
1: So you've got a ceremony coming up in a couple of weeks, right?
5: Exactly. Well, I mean, time is of the essence, technically. Thousands of graduating, even some have started this past weekend. Yes. So, you know, the time is now if anything's going to be done to change anything.
1: Right. Can schools be flexible on that, do you think?
5: They're not not for the most part, no. Uh, You know, and the, the irony is that schools have done, I think, you know, such an incredible job at putting COVID protocols into place. Students have been in cohorts, they've been practicing and living these protocols all year. So how can schools not be one of the best and lowest risk gatherings from a COVID safety plan perspective? Do you know what I mean? Um, Because what they're really doing is, because I'm not talking about parties and things, I'm talking about a ceremony so that parents can watch their child walk across the stage. And... You know, if you if the schools aren't doing this within the framework of their safety guidelines, they're pushing people to do their own and take things into their own hands. A drive by grad is not going to cut it for a lot of parents and 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 nobody can replicate it. You can't replicate the walking across the stage. Right. But it does push people out to do their own kind of willy nilly things. I think that, you know, really precipitates more uh, more of a, you know, uh, a riskier situation than than the framework that schools could offer.
1: I know a lot of parents out there, Tina, are thinking about last year, right? And a lot of kids right. who didn't get that last year. And I think those parents would probably say, well, you know what? Kids recover. They, they'll be okay.
5: It's true. Uh, it's funny. I'm on our parent grad committee. We have a, a child psychologist from the Coquitland School Board. And she said, you know what? We need to talk about the kids. It's been a horrible 17 months, a lot of different, you know, demographics, elderly and and caregivers and so forth have been really, really hardly hit. But these kids, they haven't played sports, they haven't been, they've had no social events. In fact, this year's grads had no pre-grads, no nothing, because they had no grade 11 or grade 12. You know, no concerts, no trips, no anything. And the psychologist on our committee said, these kids need closure. You know, they need to have this milestone. It's just not healthy not to. And, and schools would argue, you know, oh, we're going to, you know, she's going to drive by and we're going to give her her diploma. But it's the ceremony. It's the experience. And right. it, should be a, it should be a family experience.
1: So what are you um, hoping for? You want to be able to gather
5: I want, if I'm able to have a wedding, stage two next week, if I'm able to have a wedding for 50, a birthday party for 50, go watch somebody play soccer with spectators at 50, why can my school not have 50 people socially distanced for a graduation ceremony?
1: We will ask that question. Tina, thanks for your time on that this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks, Simi. That's Tina Barkley, a parent of a 2021 graduate, posing the question, if you can do all that starting June 15th, why can't we help out with these high school grad ceremonies? You want to weigh in? Simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: All this week, we're talking about food insecurity, and today we're focusing on a very important source of food for so many children, that is their schools. And for kids who don't get enough to eat at home... There's always been the chance for them to improve that situation at school. But the COVID-19 pandemic has been incredibly detrimental to that effort. We know that more children are going hungry. According to the Breakfast Club of Canada, children's mental and physical health are at risk. Their exposure to food insecurity is even greater. So we wanted to talk about the work today that is being done to combat that. Joining us is Mark Schutzbank, who's a school food task force member. Uh, Mark, thank you for joining us.
9: Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for
1: having me. Tell me about some of the work that your task force does.
9: So the task force came together um, just as the pandemic was really picking up in March. And the goal was essentially how do we triage families and resources to best get, um, in an emergency situation, more food to kids and families in need. And so with groups like Backpack Buddies and Fresh Roots and Growing Chefs, along with Kids Safe and Neighborhood Houses across Vancouver. uh, We work together to be able to get more money and more food out to organizations that are serving families in this emergency stopgap measure.
1: Okay, how challenging has the pandemic been in trying to get kids fed?
9: Yeah, so if you think of the structure of kids' lives, uh, they're spending most of it either in bed or in school. And so when families uh, need support, sometimes that, that comes at school. So when kids are not in school, some of the people that are able to serve them best, whether that's a teacher that's spending time with that student or a counselor or a food service provider, they're not able to get that. So when the pandemic shut down schools, that created a, a huge challenge for kids getting food at school. And But I think you know part of what the pandemic has done in, in so many areas of our society, it's really pointed out that uh, here's the, the weak places in our, in our structure and how do we best support them. So even before the pandemic, uh, on average, a teacher was providing about $30 uh, worth of food to their students every month. So that's roughly $2 million across B.C. annually that teachers are shelling out for granola bars or, or anything to put a plug in, in the gap of hunger. And, and a granola bar does not a meal make. And so I think the, one of the big lessons here is how do we help stop poverty, first of all, because that's really the, the condition that creates hunger. And how do we create a, a society, and, and particularly how can we use schools as a place of a right to food where students can feel safe to be able to have access to that food? One of the other pieces that we've learned is and just because you bring food in, if you're targeting vulnerable youth, uh, they may not want to be targeted. And so kids know who's in need of a of a food program, and those students will actually choose to throw that food away rather than be labeled as poor or needy. Huh. And so how do we rethink kind of a universal food approach so that students can feel safe? So that's actually happening across Vancouver in, in a number of schools. And so there are programs where everyone is able to be able to come for lunch. And that the whole program is focused on joy so instead of spending the time staff time trying to figure out who is needy of this lunch right you right. have to say oh your parents only make this much money but this you know family makes 10 dollars more and therefore they don't qualify uh, we're not i think the the list is how do we change that that focus and how do we be able to provide uh, more access to food that is dignified supports learning yeah. and, and be able and is able to really connect to, to students, And so I think the work of the task force has been to strengthen the bonds between organizations across the city that kind of stepped in to double their efforts, stick a, a larger thumb, if you will, in the dam of, of food insecurity, and then rethink what we can do to be able to have a better society that has access to food for, for all kids.
1: So, how big of a problem is this, Mark, in Greater Vancouver? Like, how what do we know about this situation that is facing children right now?
9: Yeah. So the the stats are are hard to be specific in, and um, because families don't like to share where they're at. So some of the best research coming out of Statistics Canada is showing that roughly one in seven Canadians as a whole um, are in a household with food insecurity. Here in B.C., there's estimates about one in five children are in a household with food insecurity. And, and that can be from anything because of, you know, family may be living in poverty. And, but it's also if a student forgets their lunch at home, if a student uh, chooses not to eat because of an eating disorder or discomfort with the food that's available, all those students are hungry. Um, and w- if you've experienced hunger, uh, you know it's really hard to learn it's really hard to be present and to focus. And so in addition to all of these students that, you know, are uh, consistently facing food insecurity at home, when we don't have programs at school that are uh, universal in nature, that are health promoting, it, it makes it a lot harder to then uh, support those students who are even more vulnerable.
1: So what needs to be done here? Like you're talking about you know, obviously giving food to every kid, but how do you apply that in school districts when they're already so short of cash?
8: Yeah, so
9: school districts are, are definitely short of cash. This is a, a bigger problem, and, and many of the members of the task force are part of the Coalition for Healthy School Food, uh, which is a federal coalition of organizations, everybody from uh, Diabetes Canada, all to these small organizations like Fresh Roots and, and Growing Chefs here in the Lower Mainland, as well as uh, neighborhood houses. And, and so that coalition advocates for a cost-shared universal uh, meal program at school. So what does that mean? It means that every school, every student who wants to be able to come to lunch can have access uh, to that food, and that the food is, is respectful and connects to the curriculum. And um, so that teachers can participate in the learning that is possible for, for learning. And it calls on the federal government, as well as the provincial government and local governments to be able to support that. Here in the Lower Mainland, uh, many local governments are participating in that. Um, in Vancouver, uh, is uh, a signatory to the coalition, and so they have endorsed those principles, and they've advocated at the provincial level uh, to be able to move that forward. And, and actually, in this new government, Uh, the mandate letter states that the ministers of education and the minister of agriculture should be working on this issue in particular. And so, uh, you know, this is a a case for how do we allocate appropriate resources to be able to have both governments and also parents that can share uh, in this funding to be able to support healthy food at schools. You know, when we started thinking about school food across the world is often a response of, what do you do with excess agricultural food? And the, you know, the U.S. government said, oh, why don't we just put that into schools? You know, here, now right. we have two parents that are working, and it's a lot harder to be able to make ends meet even with two incomes. And so how can we think about using school food as a place to find equity and, and as a place to be able to support the rich learning that comes from eating together and learning about each other's culinary history?
1: Listen, Mark, thank you so much for joining us to talk about that this morning. Yeah, you're very welcome. Have a wonderful day. You too. That's Mark Schutzbank from the School Food Task Force. Talking about the issue of food inequality, which in food insecurity, we're talking about that all this week, but this dealing with schools in particular, I you know how hard it is to eat when you're really, really hungry. Well, imagine kids having to go through that, and how do you avoid the stigma of having a couple of kids in a classroom feel like they don't have enough food? You don't want to single them out either. How do you just make sure the kids are well-fed? That is the challenge there. And they know that one in three children right now are going hungry, uh, and that is up from one in four. Children Before the Pandemic. For more information, you can check out the United Way of the Lower Mainland and, and take a look at some of the programs that they are working on to help with this situation.